Okay, thank you and welcome to tonight's Sydney Ideas Lecture. Uh, before we begin the proceedings, I'd like to acknowledge and pay respect to the traditional owners of the land on which we meet, the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation. It's upon their ancestral lands that the University of Sydney is built. As we share our own knowledge, teaching, learning and research practices within this university, may we also pay respect to the knowledge embedded forever within the Aboriginal custodianship of country. Okay, my name's Christopher Wright. I'm a Professor of Organisational Studies and leader of the Balanced Enterprise Research Network, or BURN, here at the University of Sydney in the Business School. And uh, BURN is one of several research networks that the Business School here at the University has established. And we explore how organisations can aspire to a more sustainable existence, balancing their economic needs with critical social and environmental uh, priorities. Byrne is also one of seven nodes of the Sydney Environment Institute, which is also co-hosting tonight's uh, uh, Sydney Ideas Lecture. Uh, the, the Sydney Environment Institute brings together researchers from across the university, across the various faculties, uh, to explore the fundamental relationship between human communities and unprecedented environmental change that we're now living through. So the topic of tonight's lecture on consumption and waste is directly relevant to the heart of concerns of both Byrne and SEI and it's great to be able to jointly host this event tonight. Tonight we'll be hearing from Tom Sazy, the CEO and founder of TerraCycle, a company that started just a few years ago uh, turning garbage into useful products and eliminating waste. As you've probably seen from the invitation for tonight's event, Tom has created a very innovative organisation which the New York Times dubbed the Google of garbage. So I'm especially looking forward to hearing from Tom tonight. Now before Tom is, is introduced, um, just some housekeeping matters. Tom's planned to speak for around 45 minutes or so and then we'll have time for Q&A, uh, which I'll facilitate. So now I would like to hand over to Anna Minns, uh, General Manager of Australia New Zealand at TerraCycle, who will formally introduce Tom. Thank you, Anna. Thanks all for coming tonight on a Monday night. We appreciate it. Uh, my name's Anna Minns. I'm the General Manager for TerraCycle in Australia and New Zealand. Um, 18 months ago, I was living in New Jersey and this exciting, innovative recycling company that I'd heard a lot about, um, I discovered was only about 20 minutes down the road from where I was living. So I contacted them and then I started working there with a view to beginning their operations in Australia and New Zealand, in this region of the world. Um, uh, every day, well, when I went into work there, um, I went to their office, which was in Trenton, New Jersey. Uh, Trenton is, I think, the 17th most dangerous city in the United States. And their uh, office was an old, is an old factory. I think it was abandoned for about 10 years before, um, before TerraCycle took it over. And it was, it's covered in graffiti art inside and out, and everything, from the, everything in the office is made from waste. Uh, I sat at my, um, my door, which my desk was a door, and um, propped up by a wine barrel and a fire hydrant, and across from me sat our graphics team, and we were divided by uh, old vinyl records, and behind me sat um, Tom, and we were divided by used soft drink bottles, uh, which ran the length of the um, factory floor. And uh, it was a very uh, interesting place to work. Um, there were film crews often walking around, 
Um, there were uh, yoga classes at lunchtime. <laughs> and uh, at the very young age of 34, I was one of the oldest people in the office, um, even older than my boss, Tom Zaki. Um, a few things about Tom. Um, he dropped out of Princeton in his second year of university to start the company. We're not advocating that tonight, that you drop out of uni. Uh, TerraCycle started as an organic waste company um, and uh, much of the early years of the company, Tom spent shoveling rotten uh, food waste into uh, worm conversion machines to make fertiliser, um, packaged in used soft drink bottles. Um, in 2003, TerraCycle won a coveted uh, business challenge um, contest and a million dollars worth of investment into TerraCycle and he knocked it back because he wasn't happy with the direction that the investors wanted to take the company away from its eco uh, roots and uh, not continue to package the fertiliser in recycled packaging, which I think is demonstrative of his integrity. <clears throat> in 2007, Tom and TerraCycle decided that they didn't just want to tackle organic waste, they wanted to tackle every other kind of waste and eliminate the idea of waste and uh, run brigade programs, uh, which we've just started in Australia. So Australia is the 24th country in which TerraCycle now exists and um, uh, it recycles billions of pieces of waste and donates millions and millions of dollars to charities uh, and schools in the process. Working with Tom and the TerraCycle team these last 12-18 uh, months has been a, a thrilling ride. Um, it's been very inspiring to watch Tom's integrity and his vision. And I want to uh, welcome him tonight. Thank you. Thank you very much. So what I'd love to do today uh, in chatting with you all is to talk about sort of two key things. One is to talk about this very idea of garbage and what it, what it is, because I think to deconstruct the problem and to solve it, it's important to always to take it into full context of what we're really trying to solve. And to give you a little bit of the story uh, uh, and the roller coaster ride that TerraCycle has become, it's been 10 years uh, in the making, and we now are a global company that recycles all sorts of non-recyclable waste. Here in Australia, everything from used toothpaste tubes all the way to even used cigarette butts. But before getting into it, I want to give you a little context about what TerraCycle is all about. So we have a short little video I'll play for you. Uh, this was put out about six months ago uh, by the Ford Motor Company and gives you a little taste of what TerraCycle is all about. I was a freshman at Princeton, and I didn't really have any intention of starting a social business. But I dropped out of school eight years ago because I just fell in love with the concept of garbage. Our major global solution for garbage, put it in a pile or burn it. These are not sophisticated solutions. And that's how TerraCycle came to be, to help eliminate the idea of waste by making things that are non-recyclable, recyclable. Can a plastic bag technically be recycled? 100%. Can a candy wrapper? 100%. And we do it. We're the biggest collector and processor of wrappers, chip bags, and other flexible packaging in the world. But you need a unique system because on its own, the economics don't work. Our collectors are the most vital aspect of our business. We have close to 26 million people sending us this waste. And that whole cost is funded by major consumer product companies because they found that the public was craving a solution to their waste. There's a potential What is that? Fire hose. We were thinking of accessories. Fire hose pothole. 
Our team of scientists and our team of designers look at every type of waste stream and identify what are the solutions for each one, because really each type of garbage has a different heartbeat. Juice pouches become backpacks. Chip bags can melt into an injection moldable plastic. And with dirty diapers, the superabsorbent polymer ends up being used in the farming industry, so the soil has better water retention. And the plastic is made into something like a park bench. We have evaluated every consumer waste stream, and every type of garbage has a solution. Now, of course, if we stopped buying stuff, none of these problems would exist. We are on a consumption fix. Our grandparents, they had way less stuff. When you bought a table, you would buy it with an intention of having it passed down to your kids and their kids and so on. Then we went out of the Great Depression. We went into the biggest global war we have ever seen, and we wanted to rebound from that. The idea of consumption and the idea of disposable products solved the failure in the economy. I don't think TerraCycle would have succeeded 20 years ago or 30 years ago, but we're tapping into this desire that is so deep amongst everyone to do the right environmental thing. We're collecting millions of pieces of waste every day. And so while people are addicted to consumption, and so am I, we are willing to try to solve it. So give you just a little bit of a taste in what this is all about. So Let's first talk really about the question of garbage. This is how it all, TerraCycle came to be uh, as a social organization with the mission of eliminating the idea of waste. And I think the most important thing to consider is if we take a step back and look at waste is that garbage is a completely man-made idea. I mean, you know, we learn in elementary school all the time that one organism's output is the most important input for the next organism and so on and so forth. Or if we watch the movie Lion King, you know, the great circle of life, there's no such thing as waste in the natural system whatsoever. It just doesn't exist as an idea. And frankly, if it did, I don't think we'd be sitting here right now. Something would have accumulated in such quantity and would have eaten up all the resources if that did exist over the millions and if not billions of years that life has existed. So what creates garbage? I would argue that garbage is an incredibly modern concept, uh, no more than 100 years old in its uh, uh, modern form. And it comes together because of two things that have com uh, uh, compounded uh, in the past 100 years. The first is actually the latter on this slide, which is that we make our objects today out of very complex materials. If we go back to the turn of the century, clothing was made from cotton. Furniture was made from wood. Look around today at the clothing you're wearing. How many synthetic polymers uh, are, are you wearing from your feet to your shirts and so on? Look at these chairs you're sitting in. They're hardly made from wood. They're made from synthetic materials, from the sponge that makes the cushion to probably the synthetic leather that, leather that you're sitting on, and so on and so forth. The challenge with complex materials is nature doesn't have the systems to solve them whatsoever. And if you take a, you know, if, if you, just for uh, assumption purposes, you believe in the idea that we came in from an evolutionary state, uh, then we're built under animalistic tendencies. And the idea of animals is that no animal solves its own waste. In fact, waste is created to be as repulsive to the animal that makes it as possible. It's a defense mechanism because it's filled with things the animal shouldn't eat. So, uh, you know, if, uh, if a dog poops in the forest, its feces are made to repulse it, but then some other organism, maybe some microorganisms, some bugs, would really love it and are enticed by it. So we're really built as organisms to not like hanging out near our own waste, and that makes sense. But we're also built to want to have it be as far away from us as humanly possible. I mean, think of the purpose of a toilet. The only reason toilets exist, if you deconstruct their purpose, is to move waste away from us as fast as humanly possible. Other than the nice ceramic seat that you sit on and enjoy and read a newspaper, there's no other purpose 
except to have our waste removed from us as fast as possible. So we have this challenge where our waste is something no other organism knows what to do with due to the complex material that's made from. Then you compound that by the idea of consumerism and the idea of consumption. What's really unique about this, in the past 100 years, if you look at the statistics of purchase, a human being today buys 10 times more stuff by volume than a human being did just 100 years ago. Now, someone living at the turn of the century had to feed themselves, they had to eat food, they had to have clothing to keep themselves warm and, and protect from rain and elements, and probably have to have a home of some kind to live in. These all existed uh, 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 at that time. So the extra nine times consumption that we have today is all things that are voluntary, things that we buy not because we need it to survive, but because we enjoy owning it. And just reflect on the past $1,000 of purchasing that you did. How much of that money went to things that you had to have to survive? And how many of those things went to, have, uh, uh, to, you know, to nice to have things, things that made us feel good? In addition, we've also had tremendous population growth, about an order of, uh, well, really it's about 7x population growth, but let's just call it 10 to make it simple numbers. So if you compound 10 times consumption multiplied by 10 times population growth, in the past 100 years, the amount of waste generated by the human species has gone up 100 times. And it's only accelerating as the middle class uh, emerges in, in developing countries uh, or countries that are, uh, you know, like China, where there's a huge middle class coming. So that's the issue. But the good news is that it's modern. It's not something that's been around for thousands of years. And it's because it's a very young idea, maybe there's ways that we can solve it. So let's just go into all the negatives, get them out of the way first. The size of the problem is big. It's 5 billion tons a year. And even today, still 25% of all the waste in the world ends up in our oceans. Now, um, I'm sure you've all heard about the Great Pacific Garbage Gyre. It's a topic that's been around. Uh, is that familiar to everyone, more or less? Um, has anyone seen it, actually visited it? Can you describe what it looks like? It, and I, I imagine it doesn't look like this, right? That's right, yeah, I've had a chance to see this one. I put these photos in. Uh, this is, you know, a bird that's eaten things probably off a beach that are still large particle sizes. And that's the end of a river where things accumulate. I did that to, you know, just to show what waste in water looks like. But exactly as you said, the issue when you visit the Great Pacific Garbage Gyre, which is about the size of the state of Texas and many meters deep, is that the plastic is degraded into such small particle sizes that it looks just like mush. And you can't get it out really easily. It uh, uh, would require very, very detailed filters to be able to extract it. And there's not just one great Pacific garbage gyre. I mean, there's one in the Pacific, but every ocean gyre in the world is a garbage patch, because that's where waste accumulates. So 25% of this entire issue still ends up in our oceans today. So where does the 75% that's left over go? 5% is recycled today. That's the global recycling rate, 5%. So that leaves 70%. Of the 70%, either it's burned, which uh, is typically in countries that are wealthy, uh, 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 are older countries, uh, and have very large populations compared to, or population densities. Countries that do tremendous volumes of incineration, for example, are Germany, which burns 70% of total waste, or Japan, which is at about a similar percentage, about 70% of total waste, or South Korea, Nordics, just in, uh, uh, Sweden just bought a half a billion dollar incinerator to uh, burn a lot of the capital's waste. 
And if there's countries that have larger land masses, like Australia or Canada or the United States, it goes into being buried. That's where 70% goes. So the question is, why do we burn or bury our waste? And the reason is the complexity of waste. If you just look at maybe our closest relative, again, if you prescribe to the idea of evolution, let's say the closest relative is chimpanzee. Chimpanzees have three types of outputs, and that's it. It has the carbon dioxide we exhale, or it exhales when it breathes. We have that too. It has uh, its uh, body parts, you know, hair that may come off, nails that come off, and then one day the chimpanzee dies and the entire body is, uh, is a byproduct. And of course it has its poop and urine, uh, so basically it's, it's excrement. Now we have all those three things as well. But if you look at the human system, in addition to those three categories of waste, we have a total of 300 extra categories. And a category is as broad as the idea of cosmetics. And even within cosmetics, how much range does there exist? Uh, you know, from mascara to lipstick to compacts and so on. Uh, or a category as broad as furniture, which is still in and of itself incredibly broad. Because of the complexity of waste being so high, and because we mix it all together when we put it in our rubbish bins, these are the only two practical economic solutions today. It's way too expensive to separate it out. It's why you don't yet see landfill mining in any commercial sense, because raw materials are still so cheap that it's so cost prohibitive to try to separate all, out all this range. Now, before going into TerraCycle, because I have to say TerraCycle and other recycling companies or ideas are not the answer to garbage at all. We are the, I would call it the, you know, the, the pill you take when you have a headache, or the cast you wear when you break your arm. But that's not the answer. The answer is why did we have a headache to begin with? Why did we break our arm? And how do we, do we avoid that going forward? The answer isn't recycling solutions. The answer is conscious, conscious consumption. Because the real reason garbage exists is not major multinationals that put out products. It's because we here buy them. The guilt is 100% with the consumer. And if you think about it, you know, we take very seriously every four years or depending on how often we vote for leadership in, uh, in government. We take it very seriously. We, we have you know, the media dedicated to it for years coming up to it, especially in America, which takes it way too crazy. And we don't even vote with money, we just vote with a piece of paper once every four years. In consumerism, we vote every single day, multiple times, with our money of what we want more of. So let's not delude ourselves, if we go out and buy a can of Coca-Cola, we're voting for uh, more Coca-Cola to exist. Interesting thing is, uh, one of my friends runs an organic iced tea company called Honest Tea in the United States. If you've been there, you may have heard of it. It uh, was recently bought by Coca-Cola. <coughs> And he was, we were having dinner just a few days ago in Washington, and he said, you know what's really exciting? At least in the U.S., I don't know if this is a global answer, but he said in the United States, sugary carbonated soft drinks had the biggest decrease in history of the sugary beverage industry. Yet the only division inside Coca-Cola in the past quarter that grew was the uh, natural uh, juice division. So what is Coca-Cola now thinking behind the scenes? How do we get more in the business of natural juice? which is really exciting. Their consumers are voting for less sugary carbonated beverage and for more uh, 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 healthier uh, uh, choices. And it's incredibly powerful. Just imagine if all of us for a minute stopped buying chewing gum, just to pick a random example. Within six to eight weeks, the entire chewing gum industry would be done. It would be finished. There'd be no more factories. There'd be no more distribution. The idea of chewing gum would evaporate as a concept. And I think this is really uh, important, is that the real white, white elephant in the room is how we choose to buy. Now, I want to just suggest something before going into the whole TerraCycle bit, is how would you buy if you prescribe to this? The first thing to do, the easiest, 
is to buy consciously. What I mean by that is instead of buying things that have gobs of packaging, buy things that have less packaging. Be aware that the product and its packaging will become waste. And just being aware will really help shift your consumption. Don't ask for the plastic bag. Don't ask for things to be wrapped when you buy them and so on. Now, let's say you want to go one step more. This is where I've sort of gotten my uh, consumption to, which instead of buying disposable, I try very, very hard to buy durable. So instead of buying, you know, a cheap plastic lighter that once it's run out of lighter fluid, you can't even refill it, why not buy a nice durable one? It will be a little bit more expensive, but it would be potentially a much better lighter experience uh, than your old one. Um, and it's something you could pass along and so on and keep using for a very long time. Now, if you agree to buy durable, then you might as well look to buy it used, because if it is durable, it must be available used as well, or it wouldn't be durable. And then, of course, the very, very best thing by far, if you want to solve almost all environmental issues that consumption creates, which is the majority of where environmental issues come from, just simply stop buying. Reflect on, do you really need that object? Can you live without it? And that is the fundamental answer period. It's not what I'm going to talk about for the rest of the lecture. The very top is the answer, if you, uh, 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 you know, uh, uh, agree with this. So let's take a step back. I'm going to hop between the theory and the story a little bit. TerraCycle started here. In a, uh, uh, my friends and I were uh, growing some plants in our basement. We couldn't really make them work. Uh, as you can imagine, if you're a guy, you know very little about gardening. Um, with hydroponic lights and everything, it's very, very difficult to do. And uh, it was important to us to make these plants work. You know, it was, uh, it was, it was quite, quite <laughs> critical at the time. And uh, so I went down to university in the U.S. I was in Canada uh, uh, at the time, and uh, my friend Pete decided to keep doing the, uh, the, uh, his, his gardening. And he called me uh, uh, in the middle of my first year of university in, in the States and said, Tom, the plants are doing incredibly well. You can imagine what they look like. And uh, I drove up to Montreal, and I walked into uh, the basement, and I was quite impressed, and it was quite enlightening. And so I asked him, what did you do to make the plants grow so well? And he said, worm poop. I took organic waste, fed it to red worms, and the fertilizer was the best thing I'd ever uh, uh, encountered before. Now, we did not invent this. Anyone here who gardens knows that worm poop, or more commonly worm castings, are basically nature's fertilizer, an incredibly good way to grow uh, plants. So I went back to a school, and I've always been an entrepreneur at heart, and I looked up, is there someone who has cornered the worm poop market or the uh, worm casting market? Turned out no one had. So I convinced the university to start giving me their waste, which was not that difficult because they were paying to get rid of this stuff. This is just dining hall waste. You can see the hot dogs and French toast and everything in there. So um, we, the first step in the project was to create a machine that could convert lots and lots of this into high-quality worm poop. And here's what the machine looked like. Now, this was all inspired by sitting on a toilet. As I said, what's the purpose of a toilet? To remove our waste from us as fast as possible. And the same theory exists here. No animal likes hanging out in their own feces. They all, you know, people want to move away from feces into new food. That's even what we like to do as well, if you just sort of simplify our behavior. So the way it worked is uh, the organic waste would go into this machine, which is a rotating in-vessel composter. Basically, it's uh, a uh, machine that rotates, because if you want to have really good compost, you need aeration, rotation. And you need to, uh, you know, we, we did it a little bit more technically, we also pumped in oxygen. Oxygen and rotation create fantastic compost. This was so good that you would put in uh, organic waste and within 24 hours it was at 100 degrees Celsius, uh, which is incredibly robust for a compost system. Now from there, that was just sort of pre-cooking it, if you will, breaking it down a little bit for the worms. It went into the worm unit, which is this. Basically the food would go in the middle, and the conveyor belts, these are all big uh, meter by meter conveyor belts, would go in an outward direction. Theory being incredibly simple, worms would move out of their poop in an inward direction towards new food. 
And if you timed it right, which was an inch every five hours or a few centimeters every five hours, uh, uh, the worms would stay in the middle, food would go in one end, or for us, organic waste, and what would come out was worm food. And it worked, surprisingly. And uh, this was it. This was our first installation. Now, the challenge was no one would invest. You know, I was 22 at the time, and everyone said, well, look, if you want to start a business, start a dot-com, or uh, there was no iPhones back then, so like, you know, today it would be an iPhone app. But it was all about, you know, young people can, should do dot-coms and tech startups, not something a little bit more like this, a little bit more physical. So we couldn't really raise uh, 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 any money. And uh, we did get a little bit of money going by entering a winning business plan contest. And we had a huge turning point in April 2003 where we had about $500 left in our bank account. And we had entered this contest, uh, uh, as Anna mentioned in my introduction, for about a million dollars, or specifically a million dollars of financing. W to make a long story short, we won the contest. But the challenge was the venture capitalist who was putting up the money said, look, we really like what you're doing in this organic fertilizer space. And right around that time in 2003, organic products was, were becoming quite big in North America. Uh, and they said, look, simplify this whole thing. Forget the garbage piece. Just focus on making a great organic fertilizer. Now, there was truth to that. You know, it is complicated to really focus on trying to make it from waste. It would have been much easier if we could have just ordered organic fertilizer, slapped a cool label on it, and sold it. But for me, the reason that by that point I had left school uh, was really not about fertilizer whatsoever. It was about looking at garbage differently. Fertilizer was the first catalyst to accomplish that. And what I've always found is that there is so much innovation in waste, so much opportunity to innovate in waste, we just have to take a step back because we don't let the magic of garbage come to life in the way we perceive it. We perceive it as a liability, something we are willing to pay to get rid of. That is one way to define waste. If you're not willing to pay to get rid of a material, it's not garbage. It's just a material with value. Garbage is the only material in the world where we actually pay to have it disposed, to pay to have it removed. Imagine if a potato farmer paid you for potatoes. Imagine if you were paid to come to university. It's a weird concept, right? Only in garbage does that uh, paradigm work every single day. So the way we, you know, we, we took a step back and said, well, could we solve the challenge in garbage? And uh, we said, you know, we couldn't afford any packaging. We only had $500 in our bank account at the time. We couldn't even afford for it to be shipped to us. So we thought temporarily, maybe we'll package in waste. Maybe we'll go around to people's recycling containers, collect all the recycle, uh, you know, the, the containers, because they're being thrown out, and might, we'll just fill up the, uh, the containers with the liquid worm poop at the time and sell it. And I thought we'd have to actually even sell it by the pound because every container would be wildly different. You know, it'd be so much inconsistency. So we went around to all the recycling containers in the, uh, 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 in the Princeton area. Now, it turns out it's not legal to go through people's waste, and I had a chance to reflect on this uh, by spending a... <laughs> A night in jail that night, um, <laughs> but it was, it, was, it was lovely and it was fine, uh, you know, they fed me, it was great. Then uh, the next morning I got finally into our office and all my friends who had uh, not run into the police that night uh, had brought all the bottles, everything they collected from the recycling containers and we put it out into our office floor. And we realized another major realization of waste, which is waste is one of the most standardized commodities you have ever seen. In the world of soda bottles or beverage containers, it turned out there was only four types. Now, I'm referring to 99% of the beverage containers in the world. There are 1% that are weird and different, but let's just take 99% of them. There is the half-liter bottle. There is the 20-ounce bottle, which is 591 milliliters. There is the one-liter and two-liter. And that's it. There's no other type of bottle that exists. And here's what's even more special. Every single bottle has the same cap tray. So one cap fits them all. Within any category of bottle, take 20-ounce uh, bottles, there is no difference between a Coke and a Pepsi bottle. 
the height is identical. The, the, the syringical circumference is identical. The base is identical. As I said, the cap is identical. The only real difference between a Coke bottle and a Pepsi bottle is the contour. One looks like a rocket ship, the other looks a little bit like a barbell. Here's a Pepsi bottle. And so we realized that you could actually run, as we still do today, through a high-speed bottling line, a bottling line that pumps out hundreds of bottles per minute, mixed-used soda bottles, where one bottle is a Coke bottle, the next bottle is a Pepsi bottle, and it runs like a charm. This then became our first product ever, which is simply a used soda bottle filled with liquid worm poop, uh, 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 encapsulated by a used trigger head. That's why you see the two trigger heads are actually different because what happens in the manufacturing sector, fashion, by the way, is one of the biggest producers of waste. Think about um, uh, uh, the clothing you bought. And how many times have you potentially thrown out clothing that you never wore, ever, just because it went out of fashion? Or how many times do you throw out perfectly good clothing because it went out of fashion? I mean, who here would wear you know, a blazer with shoulder pads anymore or one of those scrunchies in your hair or just neon clothing like in the 80s? It just, even if you still have a perfectly fine uh, garment. And the same thing happens in a less conscious degree in consumer goods. Let's say that in 2013, pink handles on trigger heads were really hot and people were buying because it was pink. But let's say then the trend changes and now it's purple is the hot color. Well, what happens to the millions and millions of pink trigger heads that someone like a Procter & Gamble or an S.E. Johnson bought? The answer is it gets thrown out. I mean, in gloriously large quantities. So we were able to pick those up and the only part, to be fair, of this product that is new, not garbage, is the label because we had different shaped bottles and we have to be able to fit a label style which had to be a shrink sleeve label to fit onto different bottle types. So that became our first product. And it was important to us to always try to go big, as big as possible. So instead of starting at the bottom of the retail chain, the mom and pop chain, building up the brand and slowly going bigger and bigger, we said, forget that. Let's start at the very top of the chain and go to Walmart, which in the US is the number one retailer, and see if we can get them to list the product. They wouldn't take our call, just like no one would invest. But we figured out a trick at this point. <coughs> Passionate persistence is the solution to any business challenge. And so we just called and called and called. Now we did it smartly. We'd call from different phone numbers so that the buyer didn't see you know, the same phone number pop up on their uh, caller ID. And we'd call roughly every, you know, on the hour because we figured that's when the buyer was changing meetings. And after three weeks of doing this, 10 phone calls a day, they finally gave us the meeting, I think partly to have us stop calling. And we went down to Bentonville, Arkansas and met with Walmart. And to make a long story short, they ordered 100,000 bottles of worm poop in a soda bottle. They ordered it though not just because the performance was great, because it had to be, to be listed, not just because uh, it was green, it's actually the most eco-friendly way to construct the concept of plant food, even still to this day, but it was because it was cheaper. Garbage has amazing economics. People pay you to get rid of it. So you can imagine what it's like to construct a product that has negative raw material costs instead of positive raw material costs. So we became cheap as well and higher margin for them. Now the challenge was that we were bluffing the whole time. It was my friend and I in our dorm room. We had no factory, nothing. We went down and sold this big order, and so we had to pull it off. And the way we did it is we got all our friends together. We were collecting bottles, this time legally. We partnered with a recycling facility. We had a group of friends cutting off the, bottle, the, the labels with just a razor blade. We were filling it literally with a funnel like you would you know, a normal uh, 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 juice putting on the, tr the trigger heads with your hands, which would rip your skin a little bit, but the best part was how we put on the, the shrink, wrap, shrink wrap label, because we couldn't afford a heat tunnel, which is how you do these in a proper way. 
So we took four hair dryers, put them into a cone like this, and then you dipped the bottle into the hair dryer vortex and out came a beautifully shrunk uh, uh, label. <laughs> we pulled it off, thank God. Um, and uh, that order allowed us to finally validate our system, gain some financing, and uh, we looked at the closest town nearby, which was Trenton, New Jersey. Trenton, New Jersey is the heroin capital of America. It's actually the third most dangerous city in the entire country from a murder per capita ratio, depending on how you define danger. Um, <laughs> that's a pretty fair way to do it. And we moved in. This was the building. You can see what it looked like. It was uh, quite lovely when we uh, got there. And uh, uh, we decided within a year it looked like this. Uh, it was completely renovated, um, uh, complete green building, solar panels, all that fun stuff. And we found an interesting metaphor in waste. If we agree that we define waste as something we are willing to pay to get rid of, think about street art. What ha would happen if I took a can of spray paint and painted a lovely graffiti image right here? I would think two things would occur. One is I'd probably be reprimanded in some way for you know, ruining uh, university property. And the second is the university would promptly paint the wall back to this nice dark color. So the university would pay both taxpayer dollars for me to be uh, you know, uh, incarcerated probably and also to uh, fix the room. So we went to all the uh, street artists in Trenton and said, look, we're going to change that. We're going to allow you to come paint our building, which is about 4,000 square meters to give you a sense of scale, anytime you want, completely for free. And here's what happened. People came in and could spend time painting. And instead of painting things that are really looks like graffiti, here's what they started painting, these beautiful pieces. And it became so big that when you come in every Monday to our building, the entire building, 4,000 square meter perimeter at about three to four meters tall is brand new every Monday. It's repainted. It's unbelievable. I never paid a penny for it, and I get thanked all the time. It's sort of weird. And we do this all around the world now. So, you know, one of the challenges is we started growing the worm poop business. Year one was $70,000, then half a million, then 1.5 million, then 3.3 million. We were off to the races, growing a big worm poop uh, organization. Now, every time one of our products hit the shelf, someone else's product had to come off the shelf. There's only finite shelf space. And the person that kept, or the company that kept getting hurt by our success was this company, Miracle Grow. I just want to point out, in case you can't tell which product is which, this is TerraCycle plant food. This is us, worm poop in a soda bottle, and this is miracle Grow, which is chemical fertilizer in the bottle. Again, TerraCycle, miracle Grow. The reason I'm pointing it out is that they ended up suing us uh, under the premise that we made our product so confusingly similar. Again, this one's us here. <laughs> and this is the other guy. So confusingly similar that you, the consumer, could not tell them apart. That you were buying TerraCycle thinking it was miracle Grow. And obviously, you were quite disappointed, uh, I'm sure, in the process. Here is the challenge with the American legal system. And I uh, don't think the Aussie legal system is like this. Like, I think most Commonwealth uh, systems uh, are a little bit more sane, is that if I sue you, I think here, if you win, I pay your legal bills, right? Is that more or less the case? Right. In America, it doesn't work like that. If I sue you, and it's not cheap. This will cost us a quarter million dollars a month to deal with depositions and discovery and all those fun legal things you have to go through when you get sued, that if, it doesn't matter who wins, everyone's still responsible for their own legal bills. The issue there is big multi-billion dollar company can just stomp out little, uh, or sorry, multi-billion dollar company from you know, a few million dollar company can easily stomp it out whether the premise is true or not. And I, uh, you know, here you don't have that issue, but I keep mentioning that to you know, folks when I talk in America because that's a fundamental flaw in the American uh, legal system. And there's no way we could have, our lawyer said $3 million was the price tag to get to a win on this, and we would have won. There's no question. So since we couldn't win, we took a step back and reevaluated the landscape and said, why fight the battle on their court? 
let's fight it in the media. So we launched a website called SuedByScots.com and we were just posted the lawsuit verbatim, no opinion. Within 90 days, 120 articles were written about why is major chemical company trying to you know, crush the best thing uh, that has ever happened in the fertilizer space from an environmental perspective. And Miracle Grow ended up coming back and proactively settled the case. I can't disclose the settlement terms. Let's just say our product still looks this, like this. Um, and we had this great moment. And it allowed us to reflect and ask the question, okay, we've got here, now we're a three you know, and a half million dollar fertilizer company. We effectively uh, uh, have you know, uh, uh, fought off a lawsuit from the biggest and only competitor in the space. Where do we go next? And we reflected, because we were so caught up in the fertilizer thing about why did we begin TerraCycle to begin with? And it had nothing to do with fertilizer, it had everything to do with looking at waste differently. So on that topic, let me go into what we started thinking about. Now I'm going back to the theory of waste a little bit. Every single object one day will become waste. There's no exception to this rule. Everything one day dies or breaks. There's just no exception to this. The only difference between the bottle of water that you're drinking from over there or this you know, lectern that I'm standing at, both will become waste one day. It's just how quickly. That'll become waste as soon as you're done drinking the water from it. This will become waste as soon as this uh, room is renovated, which call it 10, 20 years from now. That's the only difference is a factor of time. There's no such thing that will not become waste. Now let's just say what happens then when something becomes waste. There's really two options. It, some things could be recycled and everything else can't. What can't be recycled is burned or buried. That's the only solutions to non-recyclable waste today, period. Either burn it, maybe recover energy if it's a sophisticated incineration facility, or put it in a big pile. And there is less sophisticated and more sophisticated landfills. The real difference between a highly sophisticated landfill and a less sophisticated landfill is how well it encapsulates the material and how much compaction occurs in the landfill. The more liners and everything to ca catch leachate and runoff, the better the landfill and the more compaction, the better the landfill. But here's the question. Why is only glass, aluminum, paper, rigid HDPE, which is a form of plastic, and rigid PET, which is another form of plastic, are the only five things in the world that are typically readily recyclable. And that many countries don't even recycle all five. But why is it only those five things and two-thirds of all other products end up in the waste? And what we discovered is it has nothing to do with the technical capacity of waste. A toothbrush can be just as easily recycled as a plastic bottle. So why can you not put a toothbrush in your recycling bin anywhere in the world, but you can, in most countries, a plastic bottle? And has everything to do, as usually everything has to do with, is money. This is the magical equation of what makes something recyclable or not. Think about the costs. <coughs> Let's just start with an aluminum can, which is the most recyclable commodity in the world. There's a joke in our Brazil division, in our uh, Sao Paulo office, that aluminum is so recycled in Brazil, it's 99% recovery rate, that if you throw an aluminum can out the window before it hits the ground, someone's going to catch it and sell it. I mean, you know, it's a hyperbole, but it's more or less like that because 99% aluminum recovery in Brazil. Here's why. If you're in the recycling business, you have the cost of collection, logistics, sending a truck around. Then you have the cost of processing it, which is uh, the melting it down, somehow refining it into a sellable material. But then you sell it that material for something, and then you have the cost at the end. If this equation ends up negative, in other words, the, the value is more than the cost of logistics and processing, it's recyclable. If it ends up that the cost is positive, it's non-recyclable. That's it. 
if we want everything in the world to be recyclable, it's really easy. Let's hope oil prices go up 20 times. If they go up that high, everything is recyclable. Or I always tell our you know, partners in the consumer product industry, if you want your object or your, your, your package to be recyclable, make it out of solid gold. Because if you made it out of solid gold, I guarantee no one would throw it out. It would have the highest rate of recovery. Now, these are extreme examples, but that is the answer. So if you want to make things that are non-recyclable recyclable, which is what we specialize in, someone has to make this equation work. There's a need of funding today to make it work. Let's look at garbage yet another way to unlock all the circular solutions. Let's just pick an object. Let's pick this glass uh, uh, cup. This glass cup, I would argue, is made up of three things. First, it's made from glass. But it's not just a bunch of glass cutlets, which is the raw material for glass in my hand. It looks like a cup. So it's the composition with form. And both the composition and the form cost money to produce. But it's a third thing that is many times overlooked, which is it's an idea. The idea of this cup is to hold a, in this case, a cold beverage. This cup wasn't made to hold a hot beverage or it have a little bit of a handle thing to hold it. It wasn't intended to grow a plant to put your pencils in, which it could do all those things. It was intended to hold a cold beverage. That's why this cup was invented. If you, agree, if you deconstruct waste into composition, feature, and intentions, you unlock the circular solutions of waste. There are five things that can occur with waste. The bottom is the worst, the top is the best. Landfilling, you put no value in the waste at all. You say it's worthless. In fact, it has negative value. Let's just get rid of it because it's a liability. And the next best thing is to incinerate it. There you do value, if you recover the energy, what is called the caloric value or the energy value of the composition. The irony of waste to energy is most things burn at negative energy value. It takes more energy to put in than you get out. The things that burn at positive energy, ironically, are the things that are the most recyclable, like soda bottles. So in, I mentioned in Sweden, they just paid a half a billion euro for a new incineration facility. Guess what they're buying in bulk right now? Soda bottles from recycling facilities to be able to fuel the incineration facility. That's why burning waste is fundamentally flawed. Now, if you look at circular solutions, let's start at the very best. We'll go from the top down. Reuse is where you value the material, the features, and the intention. That is very simple. We do a lot of it in electronics, and that not just TerraCycle, but many companies around the world that collect cell phones, laptops, and other things, and just simply clean off the data, maybe put in a new battery, and it can be sold again at what it originally was. Shoes, clothing, all around the world can be reused. We do a bunch of it as well, but we're by no means the only ones. There's many, many people, church groups and Goodwill and other organizations that do reuse of apparel and shoes. Let me show you atypical examples of reuse, things that may not be as common. Well, of course, the worm poop in a soda bottle is reuse, and here's how that product line expanded over the first three, four years of our business. I point you to this one. Just an upside-down two-liter soda bottle made into a bird feeder, but was also the number one best-selling bird feeder at Walmart for two years is the number one biggest retailer of bird food and everything else uh, at that matter. Or here's another example also at Walmart. And I, I'm showing you big examples to show you scale here. That's why you're going to hear the word Walmart often. We found that uh, when, you, when, when nurseries grow plants, they grow them in those black flimsy pots. So you're, I'm sure you've seen those. They're totally non-recyclable. Um, uh, and that's how they're distributed. And we found that what is identical to a black flimsy pot is yogurt, or sorry, uh, margarine or butter tubs. They're identical in form, function, except in intention. It's even made by the same company, ironically, using many times similar molds. Uh, not exactly the same, but it's the exact same production line that makes both things. 
And so uh, two years ago, we took 35 million used butter tubs. The only manipulation to the butter tub was a hole in the bottom to allow for drainage. And this is how half the plants at all West Coast Walmarts were packaged. That's in-store, uh, 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 ready to sell whatever those forms of uh, plants are. Now, reuse is limited to high-end electronics, clothing, and simple-shaped rigid objects, like, in this case, a butter tub. Mind you, you could do this at home. Anytime you have yogurt or margarine or any sort of tub, consider using it as a planting pot. The next solution, the next chain down, is what we call upcycling. Upcycling values the materials and the features, but purposefully, not the intention. Now, everything I'm going to show you today is high-volume products. So just see, so it's all done with scale. Pet food bags were never intended to be uh, uh, made into pet beds or toys or things of that nature. Corks never intended to be into cork boards. Circuit boards never intended to be clocks. Vinyl records, uh, some of you may remember these, were never intended to be wall clocks and so on. Or mail bags were never intended to be uh, uh, a uh, shoulder bag. Um, candy wrappers never intended to be kites or uh, lunch kits. Granola wrappers never intended to be shower curtains. M&M um, uh, 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 &M wrappers never intended to be speakers. You know, uh, copy packaging, to, uh, uh, toothbrushes, movie film, juice pouches, and so on. The list is infinite. I could be showing you pictures until uh, our time is up today. Now, one of the things that we realize is we can't possibly become experts at all these things. And we learned that by losing a tremendous amount of money the following year uh, when we doubled our sales again but lost $5 million in the process because we tried to make all these objects ourselves. So we changed in 2008 our production process and we work with companies like here, Timberland. Here, 20% of the leather in the shoe has been replaced, in this case for coffee bags. Now it's not just a coffee bag, it's a little bit more complex. It's five layers of coffee bags squeezed together to make it strong enough to hold a stitch. Because if you only put one coffee bag, it's too flimsy, it'll rip. And also, the base of the shoe, which is covered in this case with this plastic, is all old wine corks that are shredded, compressed, sort of like a Birkenstock uh, shoe. It's the same idea, it's a cork base. So here, 30% or 20% of the shoe has become waste. In these other objects, like this one, it's a much higher percentage. So we work with major manufacturing companies like here, Timberland, and we teach them how to replace virgin material with waste material uh, and uh, be able to create new products. Now, the challenge with upcycling is not everyone wants to walk around with a Starbucks shoe or a Capri Sun football or whatever it may be. It's limited. There is a market for it, but 1% of the total waste we collect can be reused and about 4% can be upcycled. But upcycling has tremendous fun. Whether it's sort of one-off items, these are dresses that we made that are both in museums. This is made from 6,000 used uh, candy wrappers. Let's just say getting the raw material together for that dress was a lot of fun work and <laughs> exhausting at moments. Even our offices, as Anna mentioned earlier, are all, we have a design rule in every one of our global offices, n only garbage allowed, period. It actually becomes the cheapest way to do interior design. And, that, and again, remember the raw material cost of waste. And this is what the office in the United States looks like. Every single detail, and this is 4,000 square meters of office space, so it's quite large, is made from waste. But it doesn't stop there. Here's what our office in Germany looks like. Again, all made from waste. Or Canada, all made from waste. Or Sao Paulo or the UK, and so on and so forth. Now, upcycling and, uh, and reuse only make up 5% of the possible solutions to waste because they're limited. So everything else is what we would deem recycling, but recycling of non-recyclables and things that you can't just put in your normal recycling <coughs> container, which is where you value the material an object is made from. Deconstruct it and value its raw material. 
You may know this toy, Mr. Potato Head, but this is a very special version of Mr. Potato Head. This one's made entirely, 100% from used potato chip bags. Everything we found can be recycled. It was funny, when we first started collecting and recycling juice pouches, everyone said there's no way you can recycle aluminumized waste. Aluminumized waste is something like a toothpaste tube or a coffee bag or a juice pouch that has a high percentage of aluminum in it. Uh, juice pouches are 6% aluminum. Toothpaste tubes are 8% aluminum. Aluminum is a contaminant to recycling, and so many people say it's not possible. Well, here it is. Here's injection-molded aluminumized waste or extrusion-molded aluminumized waste. We found that everything can be recycled if it's collected coherently. In other words, just juice pouches or just candy wrappers or just toothbrushes. The moment it's mixed together into a glorious pile of garbage, it makes it very, very difficult and very cost prohibitive to be able to separate it all out and process it. Now we work, as you'll see soon, with many major companies, so we always try to encourage them to start taking the waste internal and let them look at the solutions. Now when companies internalize the solution to waste, the easiest place to begin is promotional products or marketing-based solutions because you don't have to yet integrate operations and go through that whole rigmarole to get the operations facility on board. So that includes making bags for celebrities or parties or premiums as a giveaway at retailers. Let me show you some more robust examples. We build 12 playgrounds, 20 playgrounds a year. This was built, we did four of these ones, the ones that are pictured. These playgrounds are built 100% from used flip-flops. In this case, Old Navy, but like a Javiana's flip-flop would be very similar. Um, the only additive we added in is the color to get to these colors that the client wanted who was making uh, the playground, these blues. Usually it comes out a little bit gray. The other really exciting thing is the next step is when companies truly integrate the waste back into their own supply chain. There's many examples, hundreds of uh, versions. I just point you to this one. This is the world's first pen made from used pens. Never happened before, and there's hundreds of case studies that we can point to. One fun one that just happened for the Super Bowl, which is you know, the big American sporting event, here's a fleet of Frito-Lay uh, trucks. These are chip trucks where every plastic component has been replaced with used potato chip bags. It can even happen in highly technical applications like a fleet of trucks. If it can happen here, man oh man, it can happen in any simple product that you can imagine. So what we found when we reflected on should we just be a worm poop company, and we really took a lot of research, we had a, a hired a team of scientists and designers, we found that every type of waste can be solved, and there is no exception to this. In uh, this year, TerraCycle's launching program, just to give you crazy examples, in Brazil and Canada, for used chewing gum recycling, already here in Australia and in nine countries around the world, we recycle used cigarette butts. Even dirty diapers you'll see starting in the United States. There's also a different company here, in, I think in New Zealand, that does uh, dirty diaper recycling. And maybe the most extreme of all, I apologize to the women in the audience, um, uh, later this year in the United States will be the first implementation of a national youth femme hygiene recycling program. And if we can do that, everything uh, uh, can be recycled. But the question isn't the solution. The real challenge in doing this is the collection. Because the way our, today our collection systems work, it commingles the waste into this huge pile which makes it very difficult to do what I just described. So we have to reinvent the way waste is collected. So the first model that we created, and we actually created this model not for the purpose I'm going to describe it, but for the purpose of getting used soda bottles for our worm poop product, we call the Brigade Platform. This is now available here in Australia, completely free uh, to you, so I would encourage you to use it. There's no cost whatsoever at all. And here's how it works. You go to TerraCycle in here in the Australia, terracycle.com.au. Today you're going to see four programs that are already live. One for oral care waste, 
one for cleaner packaging waste, like trigger heads and other non-recyclable cleaner packaging, uh, uh, one for coffee capsules, and one for even used uh, cigarettes. And our job as a company is to bring you more and more. That's what we're out there working really hard to do, is convince more companies to fund more of these programs. So you go to the website, you choose which category of waste, you can choose them all that you'd like to collect. You then take a cardboard box or any box you have and you fill it up with that category of waste. And this is what's interesting is even though, say, Colgate here in Australia funds the oral care recycling program, you can put any brand of oral care product in there. They're all brand agnostic. Once your box is full, you go back to our website, download a free UK, uh, sorry, uh, uh, Australia Post shipping label and send it to our warehouse uh, here in Australia, which I believe is outside Sydney. It's uh, all done in country. And then, for many of the programs, not all of them, we also give you a small donation for every piece of waste collected. In the oral care program, you get two cents for every piece of oral care waste you sent us. So if you uh, collect, say, uh, if you're a dentist or you collect at a school and you collect a thousand pieces of oral care waste, you'd have $20 in your account. Now, you don't keep the money. You get to choose any school or any charity organization in the country and then we'll donate directly to those organizations on your behalf. Because we want you to do this first for the environmental reason and secondarily for uh, being able to do something good for society but not for personal gain because that's not the right motivation uh, in doing this. And this is one, the first model that we created. It's operational now in 26 countries around the world, including here in Australia. And here's what it looks like. For example, in the U.S., 75% of U.S. elementary schools run this program. Uh, you can see here them collecting various things like chip bags and so on. Then especially at schools, what I really enjoy seeing is that Suddenly, uh, uh, schools create what we call these sort of monuments to recycling, all self-generated. Never do we ever ask for this to occur, and it's not just one or two, but in the hundreds of thousands does this occur. Now, an office may not spend this much time doing this. Um, <laughs> whoever does it would probably not look too good with their boss, but at least in, in certain locations it happens. And then what's even better is teachers then go a little insane, dress like garbage, and start teaching the concept of recycling to uh, uh, their students. The question is, this model may seem dinky and sort of granola and, you know, it's not going to collect that much, but here's the data. This is an average program. It's not a good one, not a bad one. This is uh, with L'Oreal, how much cosmetic packaging we collected per month since the launch of the program. This is U.S. data. After 33 months, we went from no cosmetic waste recycled in the United States to about a quarter million pieces of packaging recycled per month and about 3.5 million people collecting. The blue line is people collecting and the bars are how much has come in. That seems pretty good. The question, though, is what is the comparison? Is this good or is this bad? And the only thing to compare against is the very concept of recycling and how fast it grew in a country. Now, if you're younger, you, grew, you were born into you know, a country like Australia that has recycling. But if you're a little older, you'll probably remember when there wasn't any recycling here whatsoever or in any country around the world. In the UK, which is one of the fastest growing recycling markets, that's why we use it as a benchmark, in 1996, only 6% of those five commodity types, paper, glass, aluminum, PET, and HDPE, were recycled, only 6%. It took 13 years to grow the recycling of recyclables to 23%. And what we find is that our programs and that model I described to you, which is the same data here with L'Oreal, grow at about the same rate of the very concept of recycling. So one of the places that we have gone is we go to major consumer product companies like these and we say, hey guys, you know, uh, uh, Bic, you make pens. Would you like to make pens recyclable in a country? And then they're the ones, because remember I mentioned the economics of recycling, the trick is finding an, uh, a stakeholder that is willing to own that waste and offset the, uh, the cost to make the economic equation work. 
And that's where major consumer product companies have come in in a very aggressive way. Here in Australia, the companies funding the programs are Nespresso for coffee capsules, Colgate for oral care waste, Nature's Organic for cleaning packaging, and the cigarette industry all together for the tobacco waste. So it's what we call voluntary extended product responsibility. Instead of a legislative law coming in saying you must pay taxes and so on for your packaging, which occurs in many countries but doesn't allow any of that material to be recycled, now it's these companies that come in. And what's also unique about, and this is not everyone, it's maybe about only half the partners we work with. What is interesting too is I mentioned waste is very standardized. Now we always complain about global globalization, you know, especially from a social business point of view. But one of the good things about globalization is that a company like Colgate not only is the biggest manufacturer of toothpaste tubes and toothbrushes here, but everywhere in the world. And the toothbrush that you use here is identical to the one used in Japan, to the, identical to the one used in Germany, and identical to the one used in Canada and Latin America and so on. The benefit of that is you have to only solve it once. You only have to convince one company and then they allow you to go global. It's one of the reasons, as a relatively smaller organization, we can now operate in the 26 countries you see pictured here. And we're adding more countries uh, constantly uh, to the platform. Now, I described to you one method of collection. But one of the things that we've learned in looking at a challenge like waste is that there's no one answer. We always assume internally that we never have the answer and we only have just a little step in the right direction. So I want to show you other methods of collection. There's about a total of 15 models that we have pioneered and run. I'll show you only about two of them, two extra ones, to show you how this works. One method is what we call the in-retail method. You know, uh, 70,000 retailers around the world now collect in their store through boxes like these. Now, they're not going to go online and download a shipping label. So we produce special collection containers like the ones you see below, already with shipping affixed to them, send it out to the retailer, they fill it up and send it in. Very, very simple model. I want to show you one that's a little bit more interesting uh, that uh, we just sold actually a month ago 20% of our Canadian business to Canada's number one garbage company and allowed us, we did that to launch this model. We call this model the zero waste bag model. Here's a zero waste bag. Now in British Columbia and soon in Toronto, which is Canada's number uh, largest city, um, sorry, uh, my computer does this every once in a while, we'll be right back. Say Toronto, uh, uh, this is already live in British Columbia, again, will be live in Toronto very soon. Today, before at least the zero waste bag problem, here's how the garbage system works. You'll still agree it's probably pretty similar to here. There are at most three fractions uh, that people separate into. Typically, compost is something that's rare. Most cities do not do green waste collection, but if they do, it ends up being composted. This is in uh, San Francisco would do this in North America, or uh, uh, Toronto does do that. Then you have your recycling bin where your recyclables go, and then you have your waste bin or rubbish bin where it ends up either being burned or buried. So now comes along the zero waste bag. So in these cities, you get a catalog, and in it, you, there's a huge range of bags, about 50 different bags. Some are sponsored, so they're free. Some you have to pay for, and you pay more the less you're willing to separate. So if you're willing to separate down into office supplies and uh, 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 fertilizer bags and so on, then it's relatively cheap. And the less you're willing to separate, the more expensive it becomes. This is a separation here that's just all your non-recyclable kitchen waste. Because one of the things we find in waste is that the waste you put into your bathroom waste bin is always the same, yet different, from the waste you put in your bedroom waste bin, which is always the same, yet different, than what you put into your kitchen waste bin. And that's, we already segregate waste depending on what room we function in. It's always, it's always the same in that room, but different to the other rooms. So here's what now happens in uh, these locations. You buy your waste bags. You saw it's the only difference here is the center. 
you can now, there's a waste bag for every single, zero waste bag for every single type of non-recyclable waste that exists, period. You, you, uh, some of this has to be consumer funded because we don't yet have sponsors to cover all the costs. And you put your waste in, uh, and collect them in these bags, put them out on your waste day. It gets picked up by the garbage companies. Nothing changes. They become the trucking system. And everything, period, can be recycled. It's the first time in modern history that you can take a home and have every object possible be recycled. It's just, again, a factor of cost. Now, the last thing I want to touch on has nothing to do with uh, the idea of collecting and solving waste. But what we find is the way to create recycling uh, uh, solutions and actually get a country to grow its recycling, whether it's through systems like TerraCycle or government-run systems, is you have to have infrastructure. A good example, if you're in Argentina in Buenos Aires and I give you a soda bottle, you, there isn't hardly any recycling, so where would you put it? And you would end up throwing it out, even if you are a very, very conscious consumer. So you need to have infrastructure, which is for us collection and solution, but then you also need people to become aware. And one of the really fun things I want to touch on uh, is the value and the excitement of social business is that you can really reinvent the way you promote. TerraCycle, in its promotional system, has what we call a negative cost marketing engine. In other words, we get paid in the marketing process, and usually marketing is a cost. Good ad men or good ad people uh, basically are good because they create great content, which costs money, and then they buy efficiently ad time or, or, or air time, and that's what makes for a good advertising uh, uh, system. You know, good content at good efficient prices, but both of those have cost. And here's the fundamental uh, uh, question on negative cost marketing. It's the thesis of negative cost marketing. Why pay to be the advertising when you can get paid to be the content? If you look at the overall marketing landscape today, and especially the media landscape, there are more and more newspapers, more and, or sorry, more and more TV stations, more and more media outlets like websites and so on, but fewer and fewer people writing the content. I can tell you this because when I was first interviewed, we've been in New York Times and Wall Street Journal you know, almost uh, uh, you know, three to five times a year. And I remember 10 years ago when I was interviewed by the Wall Street Journal, every time the interview was over, a day later, a fact checker would call me and say, well, is this true? Did you say that? And so on. You know, that occurred. Hasn't occurred in the past five years. They don't have them anymore. They're just not the money to be able to fact check all the articles. So the, the, that's why you see the quality of media decreasing. Now, the trick to negative cost marketing is first publicity. This costs money, but if you uh, are able, to, especially if you're a social organization and you typically have partners, why not generate publicity on their behalf instead of your own behalf in your own context? And if you're able to generate lots and lots of publicity, you start building up credibility. And we're able to do that around the world uh, uh, because what we do is very unique. And this is very true, to, especially to any social organization. So we work with companies. These are some examples of media campaigns, like that playground example with Old Navy. We were able to generate over 200 articles for Old Navy turning uh, uh, flip-flops into playgrounds. What's exciting is that this gets so big that today if you just Google anything we collect, whether it's chip bags, not only is the first link on Google the TerraCycle program, but so is every link that almost <coughs> exists on Google because it never existed before. So once you start getting publicity, and that's the critical cornerstone of negative cost marketing, then you get into the true magic of negative cost marketing because what we do is when a newspaper starts writing about us a lot, we go to them and say, hey, New York Times, we've seen that you've written you know, five stories in the past 12 months. Could we start writing for you? And it typically works. Uh, today we uh, do this in 35 major blogs around the world, from the New York Times to Huffington Post and so on. 
And if you deconstructed this, we actually get paid to place our propaganda out there. That's the beauty of negative cost marketing. So the New York Times sends us a check every month and we're able to place content as we see fit. Now the trick of uh, negative cost marketing is you first have to serve the content. You have to make great content and then serve yourself. If you serve yourself first, which is what advertising does, the content won't be anything interesting and you'll lose these outlets relatively quickly. So you have to serve the content, then serve yourself. Now if you can do blogs, you can very easily get to books. We've written two books, two more coming out. If you can do books, you can very easily get commercials about yourself. And then when you do those, you can start uh, uh, getting awards and it just self-fulfills and self-fulfills. The true uh, cherry on the, on the negative cost marketing cake, I think, is having your own TV show. Uh, we did uh, uh, season one of our TV show was on the National Geographic channel called Garbage Moguls, where each episode follows as we solve the piece, uh, a type of waste. It airs here in Australia as well, as well as 22 other countries. And it's on repeat here, so if you, it, I, I don't, it doesn't air regularly anymore, because this was three years ago. Um, and now we're in the middle of filming season two of uh, our TV show on a bigger network called Pivot. We'll also be airing here in Australia, we just don't know on what network yet. Um, and again, each episode follows us. But I wanted to show you this idea of serving content. So I'm going to show you first a clip from Garbage Moguls. I'm just going to uh, pick an episode here. These are one-hour episodes, but these are just summarized into uh, a minute. The first, this episode two is upcycling, and then I'll show you a recycling episode for Garbage Moguls and show you the difference in the new TV show. There is no such thing as garbage, really. It's just that it's missing collection and solution. Pedigree has challenged us to create an entire line of pet products made from dog food bags. So what we have constructed here is it's a dog food bag connecting a car. Three, two, one. No, no, no. No, the knots are holding. That's the point of today, is to really experiment with this. Why don't we start with the, the jackets? Oh, these bags are holding nicely. So this is a fantastic looking collar. And then the leash connects to this, right? Oh, good boy. Hey, Smokey. So far, so good. We have our samples. We have everything. So it's at this point, I just have to sell the program. It's all on me now. I want to just bring out products and just Sounds get right. feedback Sounds on them. So the first toy, this can easily, I mean, it's the, you Pretty cannot impressive. rip it apart. Yeah. I just had the meeting with the Pedigree Neutro folks over at Mars. They absolutely, hands down, fell in love with the products. We now have a solution to the hundreds of millions of pet food bags that are going to landfill every year. That was upcycling. Now we're going to show you recycling. So this is all the ship bags, right? We're going to make pellets out of it. Are we going to make some pellets? filtering all the chips and all the Chip. crap out, right? Out so this is it. So how do you feel about it? It looks pretty good. Yes, it does. We took post-consumer wrappers without cleaning them and sent them through a machine, mixed, and they came out beautiful. When I look at this, all I see is like potato chip bags. It's just here, so this is the inside, right, of the trash can? Correct. First chip bag trash can ever. So that gives you a taste of the first one. Now I'm going to show you the new uh, uh, TV show, and you can see, I think, a little bit of the difference here. So this is just uh, uh, from episode one, and I'm going to play you the introduction and then one clip from it, and you can get a little sense of what Trenton looks like as well. Is 
is this on? What's this red light mean? Is that? I think. Wait. Yeah. No, that's me. We're in. Okay. All right. So if you're watching this, you're one of our international team members, and we're excited to host you next week for TerraCycle's International Week here in Trenton, New Jersey. But we wanted to make you this film to introduce you to the people who make up TerraCycle US. So come along. Crush it. That's what I do. What TerraCycle does is we make things that are non-recyclable nationally recyclable. Every single challenge that comes to TerraCycle is one that no one in the world has ever solved before. Our major global solution for garbage, put it in a pile. How can we change the garbage to make it into something new? We today collect millions of cell phones, ink cartridges, all the way to clothing like shoes that can all be easily reused. And you've got transformed trash. For 10 years in a row, we have only grown. We operate in 23 countries. Everything we did, we invented. How do we eliminate the concept of waste? I don't want you to take this the wrong way because you're really good at it, but do you ever not talk in sound bites? Let me just do some quick introductions to everyone. This is our account management team. International Week is the thing that TerraCycle has done now for three or four years in a row. It's an opportunity for us to bring all of our offices from all around the world here for a week of team building and getting to know each other. So the first person I want to introduce you to is Stefan. My name is Steven Katz. I work in the material sales department at TerraCycle. He uh, uh, just recently joined the science department. Is there anything that you want to share with the people from International Week? Only that I've been here for a year and a half. This company is an ultra-modern company, if that exists. There's yoga every other day. They can just work out, enjoy, let off a little steam. Just this morning I had a Nerf gun fight with an intern just because I didn't like the way he was working. Now, we're going to go over here. Tom has a very broad vision. Because he's so smart and because he's a genius, he has trouble relating with us normal people. I believe Tom is probably the youngest boss I've ever worked for. It's like working for my kid. Now we go to the cage. Notice that it's actually a fully operational cage where we could lock people, partly because of who's inside. Finance department, this is Donna. I think if everybody cut out the stupid yoga and bringing their dogs to work, we would be more productive and we'd probably make a lot more money. Hi, International Week team. Al, are you uh... having a scotch? So my dad's Al, he's the general counsel here. It's six o'clock Friday night. I feel like I'm entitled. Al is like a bulldog. Bloated, self-righteous asshole. I mean, the guy's got a baseball bat in his office. And we have Andrew, who just lost his goatee. Yeah, you got like a whole baby thing going on now. I, I don't care about the environment so much. The hippie shit that goes on here is endless. They're, they're always talking about the environment. And they're always talking about Barack Obama. Now we're going to head over to our graphic department. So we have Dean. I'll tell you one fun scene was my favorite scene in this episode, and if you've uh, been in corporate life, you will maybe appreciate what happened here to Steven. Steven is the, uh, the scientist uh, guy you saw earlier, and in this episode, he has a romance with one of our employees in our Mexican division, and this is uh, what happens when he has to go to human resources to see if it's okay. I just want to make sure all my bases are covered, both legal and HR-wise, okay. make sure there's no ramifications that can come up. Steve apparently has a crush on Diana Rosco from our Mexico office. My, I guess he went and talked to my dad about it. I'm not really sure why. I mean, the guy that usually gets the girl goes out and takes what he wants. Uh, and that's not the guy who checks with HR to make sure that it's okay. Is it consensual? Um, uh, right now, I you haven't really no spoken to her about this yet. None whatsoever. But you've talked to her? I mean, how uh, do you know that? I, I, just through mouth of word. Oh, mouth of word. We have some concerns when there's romance in, in an office generally. I mean, in this case, I'm really concerned about a perceived hegemony. Mm -hmm. Not at all. I do not know what the word hegemony means. 
she's a Mexican working in a subsidiary come to the American parent company. You may be perceived as, you know, the gringo from El Norte. And are there any Mexican legal issues? Mexican law is much more strict about these sorts of things even than U.S. law. I, mean, I have even heard that there can be criminal charges brought. And if she does then leave the company, we could be subject to some kind of suit for for, I don't know, discrimination? Be more likely to be a retaliation. I mean, we don't necessarily want her to sign a release. But would Mexican law or U.S. law apply? It would depend. I'll be, uh, I'll be stuck in a Mexican jail. The reason, the reason I showed you these two clips is this is the crux of the idea of serving content before serving yourself. You notice in the first episode, you didn't laugh whatsoever. Maybe you're like, oh, that's interesting. You know, they're they're turning you know pet food packaging into this or that, or chip bags into this or that. The second episode, you guys were laughing, and that's the fundamental crux. If you want to run negative cost marketing systems, is you have to make the content good to make it work, and then serve whatever you know other goal uh, that you have. So I'm just going to uh, show you one more last example um, uh, of this, and then wrap up. We talked about very complicated wage streams. And uh, the system uh, can work for anything, whether it's used chewing gum to use cigarettes. And used cigarettes is something that has just come to Australia as well here today. Now, I, the answer to cigarette waste, don't smoke. That is the answer, right? Let's just, again, look at the big white elephant in the room, which is our consumption, right? Don't smoke. That's how you stop cigarette litter, period. Now, even though, you know, uh, today I think 18% uh, of Australians smoke, uh, that's out of all Australians, uh, not just uh, a, a smoking age. So there, let's look at a solution. And uh, we brought around cigarette recycling, whether it's in Madrid or in Hungary or in Paris. But one of the things I really love about platforms is how you can really, once you are able to get into these organizations, really change them from the inside out. And uh, in, uh, we thought about a fun way to start creating uh, an, an idea around uh, looking at cigarette waste a little bit differently. So we invented this thing called, well, we call it here the portable mailable ashtray, but really it's the butt sack. And the idea of the butt sack is it's a small uh, a device. It's an aluminumized uh, device that has on one side information, on the other side a shipping label. And this is now being given away in the millions of, uh, of units in the United States uh, and soon other countries where basically you fill them up with cigarettes and put them into the mail. What I'm excited to show you is actually through an incredible partnership with Australia Post, Australia became the first country in the world to deploy the butt sack. They did the large version of the butt sack. Here it is, right here. And this is being given away by the thousands uh, for Clean Up Australia Day. You just simply put your cigarettes in here, uh, whatever, and this is where people are picking them off beaches and off the streets. Here's the shipping label right there, put it in the mail, and they all get recycled. Now, that's fun and promotional. And this is the last thing I want to leave you with, is the true change that this can bring about, and that's what really gets me going. I can't tell you which one, but we work with every major tobacco company on the planet, and I, I know the obvious irony of a super green company working with tobacco, but it's the same in anything, whether it's uh, cosmetics that have animal testing issues, food that has you know, uh, sugar, obesity issues, every product has an issue. That's why, again, consumption is the danger. So we were able to convince, and I can't tell you which brand yet because it's coming only out in 2015, but one of the largest tobacco comp uh, brands in the world, you will definitely know this and hear it when it hits, where they are now changing one billion packages per year to integrate the butt sack into the package. The idea is very simple. After you've taken out the cigarette, you put it in the bottom of the ashtray where there's a hole that will appear, goes into an internalized butt sack, and then when you're done, you take off the label where you have all your health warnings and everything, and then underneath the shipping label appears and you put the whole thing in the mail. 
that's, this is you know, a, a, a just one of many examples, but when you can take a sustainable enterprise and put it inside large companies, the change you can produce is truly massive. And so I want to leave you on that note. I want to thank you for your time and your attention. Uh, and uh, hopefully this gives you a little glimpse of how you can just think about waste a little bit differently. So thank you. Okay, thank you very much, Tom. That was absolutely fantastic and, and humorous and gripping. We've got time for some questions, though, so who would like to start? A man here and then we'll look at it. Thank you for your wonderful talk. Thank you. Uh, my question is how uh, do you figure out uh, what products a particular garbage should be recycled so that it yeah, can be of course. sustainable? Uh, take the example of fish rock. Okay. Uh, you recycle into something. Um, do you have a team of uh, smart technicians? Yeah. Well, so let's take the flip-flop as, as a key case study. So initially, when we first started the business, and you may have seen out there companies that make products from garbage. We're definitely not the only ones, you know, and especially upcycling. Um, I was actually just walking in Sydney. You had a little bit of like a fair, you know, where there were people selling handicrafts, and I saw bags made from uh, Vietnamese rice bags and things of that nature. There's a lot of this out there. Now, we started in that way too, and there the question becomes, how do you make a good bag, and then what type of waste can you make the bag from, right? And that is good, but it's, but it's limiting because you're picking the very best waste to make the bag. After about four years in our business, we flipped the philosophy on its head and we said, we're going to start with the waste. And forget the product. We're going to start with the waste. Let's start with flip-flops. You said flip-flops. So we have two teams uh, that look at the solutions in parallel. One is a team of polymer engineers and scientists, you know, people who work at DuPont and Dow and have really good polymer engineering background. And then another team who are designers, who have no science background, but are really interesting designers. So the, we always look at in that hierarchy of waste, which I'll just put up again to put this all into context. Um, we look first, uh, from a design perspective, at the top of this chart, which is reuse. Can a flip-flop be reused? It's pretty challenging, because by the time you throw it out, it's so you know, ruined that it's not going to be reused. So we, okay, no reuse in flip-flops. Can it be upcycled? So it can't. You know, so, so the, way, the way you look at upcycling, if you want to really do it smartly is, and this is the, what we tell all our new designers when they come in, imagine you were an alien that landed on the planet and had no idea what a flip-flop was. Yet I gave you an object that looked like you know, this thing. What could you think about? You know, what would you turn it into? But don't think about it as a flip-flop, because that ruins the whole point of view. The moment you think about it as what it was intended to be, then upcycling becomes much harder. So I'll give you an easy one on flip-flops, because you asked, is you can cut out little shapes that could be floaty rings, for example, if you're in the uh, you know, like, like nautical rings that you put on your keychain, because they'll float. It's just a silly, silly example, because you mentioned flip-flops, right? So then we look at upcycling. In parallel, our, design our science team looks at what polymers are a flip-flop made from. What is the base? Are there multiple polymers? Are they squeezed together? What is the, you know, the thong part of a flip-flop, which is a different polymer to the base of a flip-flop? In, in the polymer work, the first thing that needs to happen is separation of the polymer types. Because the more polymers you mix together, the lower quality material that comes out. So the first thing they look at is, how can we separate all the polymer types of a flip-flop? Usually that begins with shredding or elutriation, which is how you separate paper from plastic when it's uh, mashed together. But there's all these separation techniques that we can deploy. Once it's separated into the constituent materials, then from there it's relatively easy to repurpose those materials. And then we don't make products. We sell raw materials to companies 
because the idea is we'll go to a company that may use uh, uh, the material that a flip-flop is made from and say, hey, today you buy virgin version of that material, new version. Why not buy the used version and we can now supply it to you in a way that you can use it. Then we you know, send them the material. They usually have a lot of changes to it. So we custom develop the material then for the specific use by adding additives or other compatibilizers and then it can fit the finished output. <laughs> So in recycling, it's about deconstruction. Take cigarettes as, a, as an example. It's a relatively complex one. There we shred it. We separate the organics, which is the ash, tobacco, and paper, which is then composted, from the inorganic, which is the cellulosic acetate filter and the plastic wrap that goes around the package, and those are melted into an injection moldable polymer. But we look at it in both of those ways. We first look at, is reuse possible? Okay, then if it's not, is upcycling possible? And if that is not, everything can go into recycling. But you want to start at the top and work our way down. And it's all about starting from the waste, getting to the product, not saying I want to make a fork and what type of waste can I make the fork from. And that's the philosophical upside down that makes it work quite well. Okay, I think we have chat there. And Please. then we'll go there and there. Right. Yeah, Tom, you certainly show what's possible with voluntary and the use of responsibility. So what's your opinion on where legislation can actually enhance it and get I think that the idea of mandated EPR or mandated extended product responsibility is incredibly good uh, and every country should adopt it without any question. So if you look at Europe, Europe is, the, is where uh, EPR began and it began in Germany with the system called the Grüne Punkt or the Green Dot. And that's been replicated into many European countries under different banners. In France it's called Eco-Emballage, in Turkey it's Chepco. Now here's how those laws work. Basically, they say, if you are a producer of something that becomes waste, now we're going to tax you, and the producers have to pay a little fee for every piece of packaging they produce. That starts giving visibility to the issue, which is great. Starts taxing it, which is great. And what is also really good is that the rate of recyclables increases aggressively. So instead of recycling at, say, 23%, which is what like a United States or a UK recycle at, it increases to upwards of 90% because all that money that's collected from all those taxes are deployed to increase the recycling infrastructure of the country, more access points, more education, and so on. The challenge with mandated EPR is that nothing that is non-recyclable is recycled. So if you look at Germany as an example that has the oldest extended product responsibility law in the world, they're the ones who basically created it, and it's been around for 30 years or so, the Grunepunkt, is that the rate of recycling recyclables, like aluminum, PET, HDPE, paper and glass, is upwards of 90%. It's exceptional. The challenge, though, is everything that you deem non-recyclable, where the economics need a subsidy, are still not recycled. They're all incinerated. So there's a big benefit about EPR. It raises awareness, starts creating uh, the dynamic of, e of, of, of uh, money starting to flow around the issue, which is great, and really accelerates the rate of recyclables, but it doesn't touch the rate of non-recyclables. On that note, if, if let's say if you said, hey, because I know there's, there's a certain uh, momentum in Australia to look at extended product responsibility laws, and I think that's great. I would be thrilled to see that uh, uh, law pass here. But let's just say in theory you let me write the law, right? Uh, what I would recommend is instead of doing a flat tax or more or less a flat tax across all packages, I would look at what is the cost of, and I wouldn't just look at packaging because most, almost all, e actually all EPR laws in the world, Brazil just passed one, Israel just passed one, but all of Europe has it, only tax packaging. But what about the content? Why tax the packaging of a Gillette razor blade but not the blade and handle itself? I mean, those become waste as well. So first I would look at taxing all things that become garbage, which is everything, 
and I would tax them proportional to the cost of its collection and solution minus its value. As an example, I would subsidize someone who packages in raw aluminum because that is uh, very easy to recycle and creates value. I would subsidize someone, and I'm going to give an, uh, an extreme example, who, pa who packages beer in solid gold, again, because there is value being put, put out. But I would tax you know, people who package in things that are hard to recycle and tax even more some of packages or content that are even harder to recycle and make it proportional and then use that tax to actually recycle each of those things distinctly. Because what happens is because it's a flat tax for all intents and purposes that all the funding is used to then boost recycling, which it does, but it leaves the non-recyclables non-recyclable. So it's a, it's a little bit of a mixed bag, but net-net highly positive. Uh, but could use some tweaking to the rule to make it even more effective, I think. Sure. Um, issues and do you have any other enemies and um, <laughs> people who, who've got in your way, I guess, um, um, brands were involved in Well, let's say enemies is a strong word. We, uh, <laughs> we respect miracle Grow and the great work they do. Um, I think it's more, you know, where we have had quite a bit of interesting legal cases. And because of uh, time, I wasn't able to go into all the little bits and pieces, but I want to point out a very interesting legal case that we found on this product, not about miracle Grow, <laughs> but about something else. It turns out that there's the intellectual property rights of garbage. So for example, this soda bottle is protected. Not only is the Pepsi logo protected, that's obvious, but less obvious is the shape is protected due to trade dress IP laws, right? So here's what happens, which is so twisted. If you take a, a Coca-Cola can or a Coca-Cola bottle here in Australia, you fill it up with anything, doesn't matter if it's a beverage or if it's a uh, cleaning agent or whatever, and you put that on the market, you are infringing on Coca-Cola or Pepsi's distinct trade dress. So when we first put this product out, we got phone calls from both legal departments at Coke and Pepsi saying, what are you doing? You can't do this because this is infringing on Pepsi's unique trade dress. So there we went in and because by then we had gone through the, uh, 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 actually this was pre-Miracle Grow, but we went in and we basically convinced them that it's a very bad idea to shut this down because we're trying to solve their waste. So they ended up, because they had to then license it to us, we now have the only license from Coke and Pepsi to package shit in their bottle and sell it. <laughs> which is what that is. But what's fascinating is that sometimes the law doesn't help uh, the waste issue whatsoever. Because there's many cases where the law prohibits good solutions from occurring. And one example is this one, but another one is that in most countries you can't take uh, packaging waste and make it into new food packaging because there's these absurd laws saying that you can't have food in contact with recycled material. Even if it's FDA approved, you know, or, or that's in the US, you know, the Food and Drug Administration approved safety testing on the, on, on, on the finished material, it still can't touch food, which precludes a huge amount of incredibly strong solutions from being made. That's a really silly example of where the law comes in and really hurts. Another silly example is you may see on the bottom of every plastic product a thing that looks like a recycling logo with a number in the middle. Every plastic object in the world has to have a thing called a PIC code, a plastic identification code. And most people, and this is just you know a, a big misconception, think that the PIC code means it's recyclable. It doesn't at all. 
It just identifies what form of plastic it's made into to the point where number seven plastic means we don't know what it's made from, um, uh, or it's unknown, uh, uh, effectively. And so many people have this misperception that the PIC code means recyclable, and that's why if you go to most developed countries, including Australia, and you ask a recycling facility how much of what people put in the recycling bin is actually recycled, it averages 50%. Because people put in all these things that they think are recyclable but are not, and then it's sorted out at the recycling facility and dumped, and only about half of what is collected is actually properly recycled. So, you know, it, it's interesting that the law is structured, because we're such a linear consumption culture, that all the, the, uh, the commercial laws are really structured to support linear systems and sometimes are, are in conflict with circular systems. And that's something that, especially from a legal point of view, since we're in a legal building, is something to think about and see if we can reconstruct that so that it enables circularity to occur. I, I, yeah, so I think this idea of single stream recycling is a concern for exactly the reason you stated because what we see that occurs is the more you simplify the separation, and then look at the very best countries in the world from a true recycling rate. Take Holland, they have eight separations. Uh, Japan, 15 separations. I mean, there's way more options on separations than just the four, but the more you separate, the higher quality the material becomes, and net-net more is recycled when you look at the true data. I would recommend if your council is looking at moving to single-stream recycling to look at the data, especially in the U.S. where a lot of uh, municipalities or councils have moved to single-stream recycling, the true rate of recycling decreases. Because the quality of what's in there becomes worse and worse and worse because people are, I mean, we're all relatively you know, lazy and we don't pay attention to what can and cannot be recycled. So one of the things that we're trying to do is, uh, is this zero waste bag option, the one I showed you earlier, where the idea is this can go into single stream recycling, but you have 50 different bag types, uh, and then you buy those bags or you get them for free, you put them into one bin, but it's not really one bin, it's one you know, place to put them in, but there's 50 separations that go inside, but they're separated by bag type. So when these bags come to the MRF, the municipal recycling facility, they're separated into bags and they come to our separation facility where each bag is separated into the right uh, fractions, then those bags are open and they're further separated. The, the, the true answer to garbage is hyper-separation. It has to occur somewhere. It has to either occur at the point of consumption, which is the consumer, which today you said you have four separations, and again, the more the better, or if it can't occur there, it has to occur in the processing side. If it doesn't occur, you are limited to burning or burying the waste. That's the simple you know, uh, rule around it. And I understand that you know, it's, it's, uh, uh, it's complex. You know, people uh, don't want a bazillion different forms of bins. It's absolutely insane uh, to do that. But it has to occur somewhere. 
And uh, the reason we recommend doing as much of it as possible at the point of consumption is because as a consumer, your waste is already separated. We are the ones who mix it together. So isn't it better to not have it mixed and have it already separated than to have to have it mixed and then separate the whole thing out? And in certain things, when you put in, you know, especially complex waste, waste that has biocontaminants, like a diaper or a, a, a pad or something, those things then contaminate the waste where it's sometimes due to hazardous waste uh, issues uh, preclusionary to be able to then separate it out again. But the true answer, no matter how you cut and slice it, is separation. No worries. Okay, well, look, we've you. reached time. Thank you again, Tom, for such a fascinating talk. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you. And we've gone a little over time, but that's just a product of how much fun we've had tonight. So thank you all and all.